Part two, chapter three of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Seventeen ninety five, a country life. How butter did not feel the effects of the winter. My cream was always fresh. This brought me in every day quite a little money, and the sledge load of wood also sold for at least two dollars. Our slave Prime, although he did not know how to read or write, nevertheless kept his accounts with such exactitude that there was never the slightest error. He often brought back some fresh meat which he had bought at Albany, and upon his return my husband, from his report, wrote out the sum of the receipts and expenditures. Property like ours was generally burdened with a small rent, which was paid either in grain or in money, our farm paid to the patroon van Rensselaer twenty-two pecks of corn, either in kind or in money. All of the farms in this immense estate, which was eighteen miles wide by forty-two miles long, were held under the same conditions. One of our neighbours at Albany, Monsieur de Jardin, had brought from Europe a complete suite of furniture and, among other things, a fine library of a thousand or fifteen hundred books. He loaned these books to us, and my husband, or Monsieur de Chambeau, read to me during the evening while I worked. We took our déjeuner at eight o'clock, and our dinner at one o'clock. In the evening at nine o'clock we had tea, with slices of bread, our excellent butter, and some fine Stilton cheese, which Monsieur de Talleyrand sent us. With this consignment he had sent for me personally, a present which gave me the greatest pleasure. This was a very fine woman's saddle, with the bridle and other accessories complete. No gift had ever come in more a propos. We had indeed bought with the farm and, quote, to boot, two handsome mares, exactly similar in coat and form, but very dissimilar in character. One had the temperament of a lamb, and although she never had a bit in her mouth, I mounted her the very day that she was saddled for the first time. In a few days I could harness her as well as though she had been a workhorse. Her manners were very agreeable, and when you wished she would follow you like a dog. The other was a regular devil whom all the skill of Monsieur de Chambeau, an old cavalry officer, could not succeed in subduing. We were able to master her only in the spring, when we made her work between two strong horses. The first time she was hitched up in this way, she was so furious that at the end of ten minutes she was wet with sweat. In time, however, she calmed down and made an excellent mare. She was worth at least twenty or thirty louis. Apropos of the springtime, it is interesting to recount with what promptitude it arrived in these parts. The latitude of 43 degrees then made itself felt and resumed all its empire. The northwest wind, after having prevailed throughout the winter, ceased suddenly during the first days of March. The southerly breezes commenced to blow, and the snow melted with such speed that the roads were transformed into torrents during two days. As our dwelling occupied the slope of a hill, we were soon free from our white mantle. During the winter the snow, three or four feet deep, 
had protected the grass and the plants from the ice. Therefore, in less than a week, the fields were green and were covered with flowers, and an innumerable variety of plants of every kind, unknown in Europe, filled the woods. The Indians, who had not appeared during the entire winter, began to visit the farms. One of them, at the beginning of the cold weather, had asked my permission to cut some branches of a kind of willow tree, which had shoots large as my thumb and five or six feet long. He promised me to weave some baskets during the winter season. I counted little upon this promise, as I did not believe that Indians would keep their word to this degree, though I had been so informed. I was mistaken. Within a week after the snow had melted, my Indian came back with a load of baskets. He gave me six of them, which were nested in one another. The first, which was round and very large, was so well made that when filled with water it retained it, like an earthen vessel. I wished to pay him for the baskets, but he absolutely refused, and would accept only a bowl of buttermilk, of which the Indians are very fond. I was very careful not to give my visitors any rum, for which they have a great liking. But I had in an old pasteboard box some remnants, artificial flowers, feathers, pieces of ribbons of all colours, and glass beads which were formerly much in vogue, and I distributed these among the squaws who were delighted with them. I had been suffering for a period of two months with a double intermittent fever. This attack, which lasted from five to six hours, interfered very much with my daily work. It enfeebled me and took away my appetite, and although I never lay down, it caused me to shiver even in a temperature of eighty-five degrees, and made me incapable of any work. Under these circumstances, a young girl, my neighbour, who lived not far from us in the woods with her parents, came to my aid. She was a seamstress by trade and worked perfectly. She arrived at the farm in the morning and remained all day long, and asked no wages except her meals. My son Humbert was then over five years of age, although to judge by his size, any one would have thought he was at least seven. He spoke English perfectly, much better even than he did French. A lady of Albany, a friend of the Van Rensselaers and wife of a minister of the Church of England, had taken a great fancy to him. Several times already he had been to pass the afternoon with her. One day she proposed to me to take charge of the boy during the summer, promising me to teach him to read and write. She said that in the country I had not the time to look after him, and that he would take my fever, and added several other reasons to persuade me to yield to her wish. This lady, whose name was Mrs. Ellison, was about forty years of age and had never had any children, which was a great grief to her. I ended by consenting to let her have Humbert, and he was very happy and very well cared for with her. This arrangement relieved me of a great deal of care. On the farm I was always afraid that he would have some accident with the horses, of which he was very fond. It was almost impossible to prevent him from accompanying the negroes to the fields, and above all from mingling with the Indians with whom he always wished to go away. I had been told that the Indians sometimes kidnapped children. 
Therefore, when I saw them hanging for hours around my door, I imagined they were awaiting a favourable moment to take my son. A nice wagon loaded with fine vegetables often passed before our door. It belonged to the Shakers, who were located at a distance of six or seven miles. The driver of the wagon always stopped at our house, and I never failed to talk with him about their manner of life, their customs and their belief. He urged us to visit their establishment, and we decided to go there some day. It is known that this sect of the Quakers belonged to the reformed school of the original Quakers who took refuge in America with Penn. After the war of 1763, an Englishwoman set herself up for a reformer apostle. She made many proselytes in the states of Vermont and Massachusetts. Several families put their property in common and bought land in the then uninhabited parts of the country. But as the clearings approached and reached them, they sold their establishment in order to retire further into the wilderness. Those of whom I speak were then protected on all sides by a forest several miles deep. They therefore had no reason as yet to fear their neighbours. Their establishment was bounded on one side by woods which covered 20,000 acres, belonging to the city of Albany, and on the other by the river Mohawk. Without doubt at the present writing, they no longer live in this locality where I knew them, and have retired beyond the Great Lakes. This establishment was a branch of their headquarters at Lebanon, which was located in the large forest through which we passed in going from Boston to Albany. Our Negro Prime, who knew all the routes in our neighbourhood, conducted us to their place. At the start, we were at least three hours in the woods, following a road which was hardly laid out. Then, after having passed the barriers which marked the limits of the Shaker property, the road became more distinct and better marked. But we still had to pass through a very thick forest, broken here and there by fields, where cows and horses were pastured at liberty. Finally, we came out in a vast clearing traversed by a pretty stream and surrounded on all sides by woods. In the midst was erected the establishment, composed of a large number of nice wooden houses, a church, schools, and a community house of brick. The sheikh whose acquaintance we had made greeted us with kindness, although with a certain reserve. They showed Prime the stable in which he could put up his horses, for there was no inn. We had been advised that nobody would offer us anything, and that our guide would be the only one to speak to us. He first led us to a superb kitchen garden, perfectly cultivated. Everything was in a state of the greatest prosperity, but without the least evidence of elegance. Many men and women were working at the cultivation or the weeding of the garden. The sale of vegetables represented the principal source of revenue to the community. We visited the schools for the boys and girls, the immense community stables, the dairies, and the factories in which they produced the butter and cheese. Everywhere we remarked upon the order and the absolute silence. The children, boys and girls alike, were clothed in a costume of the same form and the same colour. The women of all ages wore the same kind of garments of grey wool, 
well kept and very neat. Through the windows we could see the looms of the weavers and the pieces of cloth which they were dyeing, also the workshops of the tailors and dressmakers. But not a word or a song was to be heard anywhere. Finally a bell rang. Our guide told us that this announced the hour of prayer and asked if we would like to be present. We consented very willingly, and he led us towards the largest of the houses, which no exterior sign distinguished from the others. At the door I was separated from my husband and Monsieur de Chambeau, and we were placed at opposite extremities of the immense hall, on either side of a chimney in which was burning a magnificent fire. It was then the beginning of spring, and the cold was still felt in these large woods. This hall was about 150 or 200 feet long by 50 feet wide. It was entered by two lateral doors. The building was very light, and the walls, without being ornamented in any way, were perfectly smooth and painted a light blue. At each end of the hall there was a small platform, upon which was placed a wooden armchair. I was seated at the corner of the chimney, and my guide had enjoined silence, which was all the easier for me as I was alone. While keeping absolutely silent, I had the opportunity to admire the floor, which was constructed of pine wood without any knots, and of a rare perfection and whiteness. Upon this fine floor were drawn in different directions lines, represented by copper nails brilliantly polished, the heads of which were level with the floor. I endeavoured to divine what could be the use of these lines, which did not seem to have any connection with each other, when, at the last stroke of the bell, the two side doors opened, and I saw enter on my side fifty or sixty young girls or women, preceded by one who was older, who seated herself upon one of the armchairs. No child accompanied them. The men were arranged in the same manner at the opposite side, where were my husband and Monsieur de Chambeau. I then observed that the women stood upon these lines of nails, taking care not to cross them with their toes. They remained immobile until the moment when the woman seated in the armchair gave a sort of groan or cry which was neither speech nor song. All then changed their places and I imagined that this kind of stifled cry which I had heard must represent some command. After several evolutions they stopped, and the old woman murmured a quite long string of words in a language which was absolutely unintelligible, but in which were mingled, it seemed to me, some English words. After this they went out in the same order in which they had entered. Having thus visited all parts of the establishment, we took leave of our kind guide and entered our wagon to return home, very little edified regarding the hospitality of the Shakers. When the Shaker who came to sell vegetables and fruit passed before our farm, I always bought something. He was never willing to take money from my hand. If I remarked that the price which he asked was too high, he replied, just as you please. Then I placed upon the corner of the table the sum which I thought sufficient. If the price was satisfactory, he took it. If not, he climbed into his wagon without saying a word. 
He was a man of very respectable appearance, always perfectly dressed in a coat, vest and trousers of grey homespun cloth of their own manufacture. One thing had rendered me at once very popular with my neighbours. The day that we took possession of our farm, I adopted the costume worn by the women on the neighbouring places, that is to say, a skirt of blue and black striped wool, a little camisole of light brown cotton cloth, a handkerchief of the same colour, with my hair parted as it is worn now and caught up with a comb. In winter I wore grey or blue woollen stockings with moccasins or slippers of buffalo skin. In summer, cotton stockings and shoes. I never put on a dress or a corset except to go into the city. Among the effects which I had brought to America were two or three riding costumes. These I used to transform myself into a dame élégante when I wished to pay a visit to the Schuylers or Van Rensselaers. For very frequently we dined and afterwards passed the evening with them, particularly when it was moonlight and above all during the period of snow. At the beginning of the summer of 1795, we received a visit from the Duc de Lyoncourt. He has spoken of this very kindly in his Voyage en Amérique. He came from the new settlements formed since the War of Independence upon the banks of the Mohawk and on the territory ceded by the Oneida nation. Monsieur de Talleyrand had given him letters of introduction to the Schuylers and Van Rensselaers. After a sojourn of a day with us, I offered to take him to Albany to present him to these two families. Had he taken seriously my woollen skirt and my cotton camisole? I do not know, but the fact is that he seemed to begin to understand that we had not entirely become beggars when he saw me appear with a pretty robe and a very well-made hat, and when my negro mink brought up a fine wagon to which were hitched two excellent horses in a harness which shone brilliantly. This was the moment for me to exclaim that for nothing in the world would I take him to see Mrs. Van Rensselaer or Mrs. Schuyler if he did not himself make a little change in his toilette. With his garments covered with mud and dust, torn in several places, he had the appearance of a shipwrecked sailor escaped from the pirates, and nobody would have thought in this bizarre get-up was concealed a first gentleman of the chamber. We arranged our conditions. I agreed to take him to see Mrs. Van Rensselaer and Mrs. Schuyler, and he consented to open his trunk, which he had left at the inn in Albany, in order to clothe himself in a more conventional manner. Then I went to pay a visit in the city while waiting for him to change his costume. After we had made our calls, he promised to return the next day to the farm, and I left Albany, taking back with me his travelling companion, Monsieur Dupetit Trois. As for Monsieur de Lyoncourt, I did not see him again. The fever with which I was suffering at the time made it impossible for me to go out. Besides, this philanthropic grand seigneur had extremely displeased me, and my friends did not like him any better. The spirituel Mrs. Van Rensselaer had sized him up from the first as a man who was very ordinary. 
perhaps i shall be reproached with ingratitude for treating him in this way for he spoke of me in the most flattering manner in his book several days after the visit of monsieur de liancourt about the month of june we received from monsieur de talleyrand a letter in which he informed us of a fact that might have caused us the most serious consequences and at the same time spoke of the important service which he had rendered us under the circumstances the balance of the funds which we had received from holland twenty thousand or twenty five thousand francs had been deposited with the morris bank at philadelphia monsieur de talleyrand had offered to withdraw this money for us and was only awaiting the formal authorization of my husband to do so by chance which was really providential he learned one night through an indiscretion that mr morris was going to announce his failure the next day without losing a moment he went to the house of the banker forced his door the entrance of which had been denied him and penetrated his cabinet he told him that he was aware of his situation and forced him to place in his hands the holland drafts which had only come into his possession as a depository mr morris was constrained by fear of the dishonour which would have resulted to him from an abuse of confidence which monsieur de talleyrand would not have hesitated to proclaim the only condition he made was that monsieur de la tour du pin should sign an acknowledgment of the payment of these funds monsieur de talleyrand therefore urged my husband to come to philadelphia to arrange this matter at the same time he advised me to accompany my husband for having consulted several physicians he said regarding the persistency of my fever all were of the opinion that only a journey would cure me of it mr law possessed a charming mansion at new york and had already urged us several times to come and make him a visit the haying would not begin before another month and monsieur de chambeau was familiar with all the details of the farm work there was nothing therefore to stand in the way of this trip our neighbour susie the young girl of whom i have already spoken agreed to come and take my place to look after my little girl as for my son humbert who was still with mrs ellison at albany he would not even know of our absence end of part two chapter three